Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Joanna Macy and host Steve Heilig, titled World as Lover, World as Self, The Wisdom of Our Grief and Outrage. Welcome, everyone. So great to see everybody. So glad that Joanna's joining us. And, and I just want to thank you for coming. And we're, there's no question that we're leaning into very dark times. And it would, wouldn't do justice to say, hey, this is really exciting. Well, it is exciting, but it's dark times. And for me, um, Leonard Cohen sings about uh, in everything there is a crack and that's how the light gets in. And I just want to say that, that this new school program that Michael generated and Steve is going to serve and is, um, and Kira who makes it all possible at the back, dressed in red, yay. Um, is one of those portals, one of those cracks, one of those windows that opens in our challenging time to let the thought leaders in, to let their light shine in all the work that they do in all the areas, and diverse areas. And I don't know how we would move forward without that, you know, that that light is really the medicine, the hope, as we move to generate the vision of the world we'd like to have. And that light is so important. So thank you. Uh, my name is James. Um, I'm the co-director of Regenerative Design Institute, and we've been the stewards in the garden for the last 14 years. And this exhibition um, is our gift back uh, to all the courageous people, over 6,000 over the last uh, 14 years, who've come to the garden um, looking to how can they make a difference in the world. Kira gave me the honor to introduce you. It's, I think, one of the sweetest things that's ever happened for me. Um, I'm going to try to do this. <laughs> Um, I don't want to talk about what you do in the world as an introduction. I want to talk about... Yeah, you better sit down. <laughs> this won't hurt. Um, like so many of us, but I, I'm going to speak for myself, that what Penny and I have been doing in the garden and so many of us um, we do it, we have ridden the wave of light that you are in the world and inspire us. I, when thoughts and words just don't, don't work right now, because what I'm present to is when when I'm doing and having challenging times or whatever I'm involved in, in service, uh, I feel your light in my heart. And um, 
I, I don't think I could have done the work that I've done in the world so far without ins the inspiration that you are. And for so many, and on behalf of all those, one express deep, deep gratitude. And symbolized in this. From the garden. Thank you, James. So, um, we were standing over there, and I said, James is going to get through this without saying who he is. And he didn't say, I knew he was going to do that. I mean, there, there you just see an example of why we're here. I mean, somebody who himself uh, and Penny and many others have done work that has taken root, literally, and spread around the world and inspired, at least in great part, by our speaker today. Um, the only other logistical thing I need to say before we really get started is the only part of all these programs that I, that I don't like, and that's about money. It's the last taboo in the world. People go on TV and talk about their sex lives and their everything else, but if you ask somebody, how much money do you have, it's like a no-no. But, this but wouldn't you rather hear about his sex life? Was it? <laughs> it cost uh, $130,000. So, um, where was I? <laughs> Money. No, so we actually had a discussion recently, the New School, Michael and Kira and some of us, about how do we keep this thing going because it's basically a shoestring program and uh, should we start charging a token amount and would that help with the RSVPs or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we really just came up pretty quickly with the conclusion that one of the beauties of it is that we don't charge for it. So we rely upon donations for it. And that's all I can really say. Whatever you feel you can do, um, thank you. So. Could you introduce yourself? My name is Steve Heilig. Um, <laughs> I'm James Stark. No. Um, I'm a 20-something year common wheelie, or a wheelie as we call ourselves. Um, actually work uh, mostly in science, health, medicine, and epidemiologists by training, environmental health. We've run a number, started a number of programs through the year here, some that are still running and some that have spun off and some that didn't make it. And uh, so when we started the new school, uh, Michael graciously started some of it off with doing an interview with me and then some of other programs as well. So this is really one of the fun things I get to do and to ask wonderful people to come uh, here and do it. Yes, well, James did, but he, I didn't think he was going to do that either, but these are his photos. And so this just happens by great chance that he was here to introduce us. But, and as he mentioned, that by another great chance, one of them includes her. Um, and so the, pro, the, the RGI, the Design Institute, is it, it's all over the place, but it's right in a canyon right up here just past the turnoff where you came down to Commonweal. Okay, let's start with just kind of come together here.
So I expect that many of you here have heard of the ancient Chinese curse, which says in total, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> and if you look at history, all times have been interesting and challenging around the world. But we're in something different now. Um, some people, scientists, etc., have called it the Anthropocene. It's where we're, we're finally at a point where human activity is the biggest influence on our planet. Um, about 200 years or so now, probably, depending on how you measure it. And two huge dynamics have happened. Industrial revolution and the human population explosion. You put those two together, we've got some ahistorical problems. And like I say, there's always been problems, but now we have it where it is threatening collapse in various ways. And you could name off the list. You all know them, I'm sure. Climate and epidemics, nuclear issues. Now we have the threat of a cyber meltdown of some kind. Food uh, collapse, which is happening. And the interesting thing in just recent years or so, in particular, there have been a number of big reports that have noted that actually more people are doing better on the planet than ever before. And that is actually true. But the problem is, is there's so many people that more people are also doing worse than before. And the other issue is, is that the sustainability of all this for our biological systems. And of course, we have now, the, like never before, the threat and the already felt impact of climate change. Um, in the last 50 years, many people have started to speak and write about this. I get a lot of my... Uh, Touchstone and wisdom from songs, and I, one that plays in my head all the time was from our poet laureate, Nobel Prize winner, that just says, a hard rain is going to fall. One of our more local poet laureates, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, more recently said it much more succinctly. He had a book that the title was, Wake Up, the World is on Fire. So what happens when you wake up is the the issue for today or part of it. What, when you, what, what does it mean to really feel what is coming and what is already happening? Um, one of the terms that people have used is ecological grief. The feeling that there is so much suffering going on that is being caused by our impact on our planet, our environment. Um, you may have read just recently, there was a really striking, shocking case, really, of a, a man, an attorney, actually, who self-immolated, who burned himself, citing ecological grief and climate change. Of course, there may have been other issues there, but it certainly was extreme, and it reminded me so much of some of the earliest striking memories I had of Vietnamese monks doing that to protest the Vietnam War, Tibetan monks doing that to protest the uh, Chinese occupation and so forth. Really kind of the ultimate demonstration of, of grief and fear and harm. Um, so there have been a number of great teachers in our time who have tried to confront this in innovative and even hopeful ways. And the way really that this talk came about today, I'd trace it back to the first week of this millennium. So the first week of January 2000, 17 plus years ago, I had gotten a uh, small grant, the only stricture on it with some money that said, do something you wouldn't normally do. 
which was great. But I couldn't really think I'd do whatever I want most of the time. So one of the things that I saw a, uh, an announcement at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, a couple canyons over here, for a six-day, I believe it was six, five nights and six days with Joanna Macy and Wes Scoop Nisker, some of you know, called World as Lover, World as Self, Confronting the Environmental Catastrophe. And the last thing that I would generally want to do was go sit down somewhere for six days and try to meditate and all that. I mean, I have enough trouble just sitting for 90 minutes up here. But um, I signed up and uh, I went. And I remember driving out there with my bike on top of my car and my wetsuit in there and thinking, well, if this is really boring or sappy or something, I can split at lunch and nobody will even notice. And this was actually the one where they knew who you were. You had to apply because it was a retreat for activists and advocates of all kinds. There was, I remember meeting 40 or so people, just housing activists, civil rights, environmental, a rape crisis counselor. I mean, just a wonderful array of people. And there was no, and by the time it was over, six days in, I didn't want it to end. And it was because of our speaker today. I was so impressed by the way that she presented so much material and information and exercises that I never forgot it. I came right out, I bought all her books, and uh, have gone on since then. But our mutual friend, Shams, who was here, we were talking one day, and I just came to me, I said, you know Joanna Macy really well. How about we get her to Commonweal? And so, here we are. So, I asked her to talk for five days and six nights here. <laughs> but what I really, I, I really though, I, I want her to talk as much as she wishes to, and then I will either return here or we'll be done. But I think we'll come back and have some dialogue. But so you, you saw an example of what a uh, revered teacher she can be from James, and I second that, and I ask you all to please welcome Joanna Macy. I am sitting here remembering being in this very room, and I think it was about 15 years ago, but I'm not sure, doing a workshop in this work that we connect. So it's highly experiential. And uh, we were experiencing here. There were about 50 people, and it was a two-and-a-half-day, three-weekend. And I'm sort of, there was a group, there were people who were uh, sobbing. There were people who were shouting. There were people who were beating pillows. And then there were people who were fascinated uh, sharing, uh, with each other, their deepest feelings and their deepest aspirations, or highest aspirations of what they wanted to do with their lives for the sake of life on earth. But that passion with which they said that and with which they were supporting each other uh, on our final day had a lot to do with the crying and storming that was happening in the morning of the first day. So this is, I never thought I'd see this room with people just sitting so ordinarily and 
quietly and shutting up. <laughs> Which, um, now my mother told me for many years of my growing up, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And she would be, I guess she has been uh, spinning in her grave at what her child has been fomenting over the last, uh, actually it's been almost 40 years. And that um, what the wisdom of our uh, grief and outrage, what brought me to uh, believe in that and bet on that and give thanks for that and find ever new revelations of that, of what the grief and uh, outrage, the doors that blast open to wider dimensions of our being and of our intellect and of our knowledge. So I could tell a little story about how um, it began. I was going to be I'd gone back to graduate school in my 40s, uh, having had encounters with Tibetan Buddhism when we were with the Peace Corps in India, in northern India, with the refugees coming over. And the effect on me, and then of finding not only the quality of presence that these people in all their hardship were manifesting, but the... Uh, teachings, what, the worldview. So I pretty soon made up, as soon as the uh, kids are into, at least into high school, I'm going to go back to graduate school. And I did in my 40s. And uh, I would be to this day some, I'm sure, a brilliant professor but I didn't end up there at all. What happened? Because I was a good student. There's nothing like raising children and then going back to studies because you know how to use every single minute. And you're so grateful to have a mind that can focus for even 10 minutes. <laughs> and, um, but my uh, son, who is now working in San Francisco, at the Department of Environment, uh, he came back from his freshman year in college and said, Mom, you might be interested in my, this paper I wrote. Oh, I'm sure I would. And I opened up this paper and began to read it dutifully, and it changed my life. Uh, it was a paper on the thermal pollution from nuclear reactors. I mean, it wasn't even the radioactive pollution. And I said, Jack, this can't be true. If this is true, people would be out on the streets and certainly the aquatic biologists and the sports fishermen and commercial fishermen, they would, nobody put up with this. I found it was true, and then, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. So pretty soon, I was with him taking part and things like um, occupying a re nuclear reactor as it was being built, uh, doing some kind of frontline civil disobedience. And uh, 
I thought, wow, I'll get back to teaching soon. But that wasn't the, was the end of the path. Then I found that um, in order to understand it better, I took part in a people's lawsuit against a, 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 a reactor station, nuclear reactor station, windward of where we lived. And I was on a team with every twice the age of all the others on the team who were law students. And I didn't have, I wasn't as quick or as smart as they. So they said, you just go look. You go look and you do the research on health and we'll handle the strategy. So I dutifully went off and it was like the top of my head went off. We are literally doing this, we as us culture. I found that even without an accident, there are leaks and the closer you get to a reactor station or weapons plant, the higher the rate of miscarriages and stillbirths and birth defects and solid tumors and leukemias. And uh, so I thought people ought to know this. Try telling people. Try bring it up at a dinner party. <laughs> Try talking to friends. And I could see a glaze go over instead of saying, oh, dangers of radiation, just what I want to talk about. No, nobody said that. And so I thought, how are we going to, as a people, confront the um, dangers that we ourselves as a nation are creating? And then it was that I noticed that organizations environmental organizations, peace organizations, were all hammering at people, trying to scold or scare the public into action as if people didn't care. Well, I thought, but people do care. What is this? People are thinking that they, that must be it. There's the people are so apathetic. It was about that time my daughter came home from high school and she had a riddle. Mom, what's the difference between ignorance and indifference? And so I very seriously said, well, you know, and then she just shrugged her shoulders and she said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> and so that got me thinking, but Actually, that's pretty funny, but actually people do know and do care. So why are they acting as if they don't? What is it that, what is holding people back? Why are they shutting up? Why are they repressing painful information? And that's when I started to experiment, I started with a meditation class, as a matter of fact, that I was teaching. And seeing with, with the meditation instruction, instruction, seeing if we could get close to something that was uh, our grief or our outrage uh, for the world. And uh, 
I can't believe the nerve I had back then. I even put up signs about to come to a workshop so, so you can cry. No, but, and, but um, I looked up in the, the etymology of apathy and found that it's the apathen. So a is the negative, and pathen means suffering. Our word passion comes from that. So it's either the inability or refusal to suffer. Oh, I'm beginning to get it. Why would we be afraid to suffer? Why would we be afraid? I can see other things like I don't, I'm afraid. I don't want people to think I'm depressed or depressing. I don't want to think, make people think I'm unpatriotic um, about this. And why are we putting little smiley faces all over everything? And yes, the uh, competent person you vote for for public office smiles a lot. So that the person, you, we're sort of brimming with optimism or feeling that we should. So the seeing if we could broaden, work with, not saying we were doing that, but just inviting people to share what's in their hearts. And the work is all done by the people involved, taking part in various exercises in movement or talking or uh, drawing or to be able to give voice to that grief. I learned that um, a lot of people, when I wrote the first article about it, it just, uh, how to deal with despair was the article that got printed in a journal and brought in the most uh, voluminous response of, uh, that they had received from readers. And uh, not one of them said, why, in the, why don't you tell us what to do then? They didn't, to make things better. All they said, thank you, thank you for showing me I'm not crazy. To validate the grief, the, to help people even look at it to let it speak. To let it speak began, I could see very quickly in the workshops. It opened the heart, a lot of energy, or as James just said about it cracked the light shows through. And people were feeling that they were coming alive. And they were falling in love with each other right and left. Those first years, it was just amazing. I can just see them in my mind's eye because often the exercises were a pair talking and they would do the open sentences and so forth. And I'd look over and there were the mascara streaks down the chin, face, tears flowing. And, uh, and then this showing something so 
beautiful about themselves. They were embarrassed. But what they were revealing, think about it. They were revealing a generous heart, a caring heart for our world. They were revealing courage. And so we were um, seeing so much to admire in each other and in ourselves. And there were uh, so people came to this. Most artists, Quakers were the first. It's interesting. There's a spirituality and, and um, political. And then all that energy to pour right into finding maybe it's a purpose that you already had that would come to light, or the working with each other about how you could do a canvassing or a uh, leafleting or a campaign uh, together and support each other. So that's, uh, and the poet Denise Levertov said, once to speak of sorrow moves it from its crouched place, barring the way to the soul's hall. Your sorrow unexpressed, your sorrow paved over, your kept buried blocks the way to your soul. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Joanna Macy and host Steve Heilig. Another thing that I noticed was that in the speaking of the grief and the outrage, there was something happened. First I thought, the reason I did it so that people would become agents of social change. <coughs> Activists get out there and do something. But then I found within the first couple of years something strange happening, unexpected at any rate, that in the language of my friends and colleagues who were gathering around and learning the work and doing it on, the, uh, on their own, facilitating it themselves, and pretty soon there was a book about it. That was in 83, Despair and Personal Power in the Nuclear Age that came out. And the work became known as Despair and Empowerment Work. Anybody ever remember that early book? Yeah. Um, so what I noticed was something strange. As they spoke, as we joked around, as we were having a meeting, or as we were doing a workshop, I mean, they would use language that indicated a shift in their identity, that they weren't anymore that delimited, individualized, separate individual, what, what uh, psychologist Jim Hellman calls the lonely cowboy ego, the... Uh, they were talking as if they were part of the earth. 
they were speaking as if the earth were their body. Now, where did they get that? And it was because I finally was beginning to dawn on me is that when you speak the sorrow, as we look at our world today, that sorrow is far bigger than you. You are speaking the sorrow of others. And how do you know that the tears uh, in your eyes or the rage in your chest and tightening your throat is yours or is that perhaps of an Iraqi mother looking for her child in the rubble? Or any of the others, a, a, uh, an elephant lost from the tribe, you know, the whole that once you open the door to your grief and outrage for the world, um, you're in a terrain that exceeds your previous notions of your delimited self. Does that make sense to you? And this works so consistently And this interested me because as a teacher of the Buddha Dharma, Buddhism, and been to lots of retreats and sitting to, "Mm, I'm going to sit there and just be "Mm, this big, "Mm," like, oh, and I'm everything, "Mm," one with everything. "Mm." (laughs) Then this happened much more consistently to be able to befriend your grief and outrage for what is happening to your world, just suddenly you It's like walking out of the small closet of the separate self. A closet that sometimes feels like a prison cell. This may be the greatest, one of the great desires of our being that we break out of the loneliness and the separateness in this most individualized, hyper-individualized culture of our history. So competitive, so behind our walls, so constantly looking at myself, how am I doing? So much energy goes in to trying to be tolerable or presentable or make sense. We ache to be more than our separate self, it seems to me. That's my thought. Do you agree? And that this was happening uh, through... uh, And so I found myself saying to people, we have a very simple exercise, and you can do it yourself because all the work is now uh, open source and it's uh, on the website and it's in books. And... um, that um, what was at the beginning of that sentence? You do it. What? The exercise. You can do it. You can do the work yourself. Oh yeah. We need to be our more than our separate self. A simple exercise. 
you know, I'm so glad for the opportunity to be able to identify more widely the world instead of just with this old lady who forgets what she was saying. Yes. Um, oh, well, at any rate, I'll come back. To, if it was worth saying, I'll come back to it. Um, so we have the notion that spiritual practice is to make us serene and equanimous and calm. And um, when I went back, I've got it described. So I, I um, went back to the t Tibetan community where I had discovered, with whom I discovered the Dharma uh, 20, 30 years before. And uh, I was, they told me something so incredible. Once they learned that I was uh, about, this, what's this nuclear thing you're telling us? And so, and, and this nuclear guardianship project, what's that? And so they asked me to speak to the, um, all the monks, there were about 100 that came out. And I never had spoken, I thought that I had nothing to tell them. I was only their student. But um, when they listened that, they said, now we know why we met. It's because we are the carriers of a particular tantric practice. And uh, we have decided that you must learn it. And you just need to come back here every year until uh, you get the mind-to-mind -mind transmission. And this was a practice about a wrathful form of Manjushri's, the celestial bodhisattva of wisdom. So it's about wisdom that's gone wrong, like within our making nuclear bombs and reactors. And so that I noticed then that everywhere where in, the, in their community, in their monastery, were these figures of this wrathful form of Manjushri. And he was, ooh, he was very fierce. Uh, and they, they, um, my teacher just pointed him out, just notice this. Notice the fangs. Notice that all's on fire in his eyebrows, in his hair. Notice the th three heads. Uh, notice the snakes poisonous snakes draped around him. Notice the skulls draped around him and the freshly caught, cut heads. Notice how, and I was just, and then I was just, he said, oh, so angry, so angry. That anger straight from the heart of pure compassion. Straight from the heart of pure compassion. Because you dare to let yourself be upset and disturbed for the sake of others, for the sake of your world. That's made it hard for many Western Buddhists to um, get involved in social change work because it gets in the way of thinking that the whole point of it is to be serene. And, and serenity's great. Don't, don't, I don't want to knock it. 
But love is often stormy. And I think we want a world-shaking, roaring love right now. We don't want to sit quietly with a little smile. I was about to say knitting, like bottom to forehead. Um, as the world contaminates and devours and other people can self till there's almost nothing left. I'm thinking about the next thing to say. So when we, I'll tell you about how the road we walk in this work. And it's good for each of us in our own separate lives, I've found. The path we walk in this, every time we do a workshop or we face some problem or want to tear our hair because of what's going on or what just got issued from the White House, um, is to this, it has four stations in it and in that spiral. And you can keep going round and round it because it's different at each time you go round. But it has these four stations. You begin with gratitude. That showed up. That didn't show up at the beginning of this work. We went straight into it. Grief and outrage right off the bat. But then we found that we needed to have, as conditions got worse, as life seemed ever chancier for the survival and the future seeming to hang by a frail thread, that we needed to ground ourselves in our right to be here. And nothing seemed to do as it does that better than giving thanks. And I'm so grateful to be living on a continent with where the native peoples, especially in my home state of New York with the Haudenosaunee and the Six Nation Confederacy, how strong that tradition is of thanksgiving. The greeting we give at the beginning of almost any uh, meeting, as you know, and they've been through plenty of trouble with massacres and expropriations and uh, contaminations and theft and addiction and They have, those who haven't been broken of these noble people have learned to ground in gratitude at the beginning. It's the words that come before all else. To be glad you're here. That's our birthright. So when you're facing a tough situation, try to start with that. Just in your mind. Or you can do it with a group and giving thanks for each other, giving thanks for our older brother, the sun, our grandmother, Moon, the washers, 
the fresh waters and the fish that clean the waters and all of that. That puts you into a quality of sturdy groundedness and dignity. Then we move toward letting the pain come in. Okay, this hurts. And I will let myself feel it, experience it, and express it. Even if just in writing or in drawing something or to another as we do. Our culture does just the opposite. So this is the point where it's the most countercultural. The message that I'd been given by my mother that we have to look on the bright side and that if and what keeps us kind of shut up and what keeps us silenced is more effectively than the teachings don't cry because, and I've just been learning so much from my own root tradition, which is Christian, that so many Christians among our ans- my ancestors were told that uh, don't cry that will be an offense to the the divine. But more effective than that is a trend, a condition in the psychotherapeutic profession to treat the, reduce our pain to the individual there's something to pathologize it, to look for what's wrong, as if our grief, our outrage, our dread or fear were a sign of a personal weakness, perhaps some early trauma. This has kept a lot of therapists in business, and it's been also very profitable for the big pharma corporations. The message we need, therefore, I found right away, is to take it that our grief and outrage are a normal, healthy response to obscene and cruel conditions, to the suffering of people. Oh, now I just remembered what I almost forgot. Uh, because, so we'd have an exercise, like we call it open sentences, and uh, people talk, express what their concerns might be. You know, um, for example, uh, as I look at what's happening to the natural world, what breaks my heart is, that would be an open sentence. So people would repeat that and then go on to say what's happening in the natural world that breaks your heart. Boy, it feels so good to be able to say that. And it feels good if your tears come at the same time. 
So after a series of these, I have found myself saying right, almost right away, friends, please notice something. Kindly observe the extent to which the concerns you expressed go beyond your personal ego, go beyond your individual needs and wants. It's important for you to see that because um, that shows that you are willing to suffer with your world. Get a load of that. That is the literal meaning of compassion. You are a compassionate being. And the world needs that. So we need to just move ourselves off the dime about just conceiving ourselves as in a straitjacket, limited only to what is self-referential. As that happens, I already mentioned that I noticed right from the start people were talking as if they were speaking for the earth in some ways. You know, that, uh, and, and so we opened up to what was to a new fields, new ways of experiencing our inter-existence. And there are many of them. We belong to each other. And one of the movements, that's, that's so many ways that you might already be involved in, but one that was just perfect for carrying this for me was the deep long-range ecology movement, or we call it deep ecology, which was a came out of Norway and then spread very rapidly, many through Buddhist people or through people of any religion to get us, finally help us slough off the anthropocentrism that had been, has been limiting like blinders that we only can care about our species and that we are at the pinnacle of all creation and everything is for, even our environmental work is for the benefit and profit of of the humans, clean up this river for that, and get it on for the, the humans. So th that developed into a whole form of work. So pretty soon the work began to be called deep ecology work. And we had uh, new processes that we were inventing, such as the Council of All Beings, where the people come together and we do a ritual where each person can, is encouraged to step aside from her or his human identification and invite another uh, being, another life form to speak through you. Anybody done a Council of All Beings? Oh, put your hands up high, yes. Isn't it a ball, isn't it great? It is so good to find out yourself and what comes through your own mouth 
that is wider and, and, and wiser and funnier or sadder than uh, who you, your, your, your social, socially constructed role. So this has been, uh, so for quite a while, this work was known, and still in Russia and Germany and other countries is called deep ecology work because it tunes you to a world far beyond. And with that comes so much pizzazz, so much more imagination, so much more energy, so much more um, wit, so much more endurance that you would think that you can draw on because you don't belong. The hu your human, honey dears, your human role, your human body, and form is just the most recent chapter of your long evolutionary life. Right? Right. <laughs> and that the life in you goes back, 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 even the cells in your hand there, and the atoms in the cell, the, in the molecules of that, that goes back to the formation of the galaxies. You're that old. <laughs> and it's time now, when Earth is under such threat, we are very close to losing in a situation where we can't stop the loss of complex life forms. That's my belief, and I'm not the last, only one who believes that. So we need, we need all our wisdom. We need all our sense of belonging. We need all our courage and wits and wiliness, and it's there in us as we go back, back. So we began in this to develop deep time work where we could dispel the amnesia that separates us from the generations of all life forms and all the species that have gone before, to affirm again, to it's like experience in your own uh, body-mind a belonging that goes far deeper and far more distant roots in the past than your human self. You weren't born yesterday. In your mother's womb, you remembered the whole thing. How you had fins. How you had a tail. We remembered that. And then right up, and there you are. You're born a human, just this is the latest form. This gives talk about imagination and endurance. Mm, that's great for, uh, for that. So we have deep time work, deep ecology work that expands our sense of who we are and helps us um, when you have a, yeah. It helps you be so glad to be part of this show. So glad that you know at times I think of 
and other Buddha fields and other planets. Boy, they're counting exoplanets now in the billions. The word gets out what's happening on planet Earth. Oh boy, they're about to blow it. And I have the feeling that people are just lining up to be here. Because we're in a situation where everything we ever knew or dreamt we wanted in terms of courage and our connectedness is called for. So I actually, and maybe you are too, very grateful to be alive at this time on this planet. How am I doing on time? I wanted to um, tell you uh, a prophecy. And then the fourth part of the spiral is going forth, where you remember the key things you'd learned in the other stations, and you make plans together for what you want to do with this wild and precious life, or even for this next week. Or it could be something you were already doing, but no fresh, fresh approach to it. So I mentioned, now I'm going to stop after this, I'm going to, and then we'll open it up to questions. Um, I'm going to, uh, I mentioned the uh, Tibetan community that uh, gave me the practice of the um, poison molten iron Buddha phase for radioactivity. That, that was the way they had foreseen that this challenge had even foreseen that the, uh, the capacity to break open the <clears throat> kernel, the nucleus of the atom, where the protons and the neutrons are held together by the strongest binding power in the universe. There's strong uh, binding power and weaker, and there's gravitation and electromagnetism. Those are the four energies. But this is the strongest. It's like the glue which holds the universe together. And in the middle of the 20th century, under the pressure of war, our science, science, human scientists managed to break that open, release that strongest binding power. And it's made us kind of crazy. And it's made us feel that there's no glue left holding the world together on a kind of deep, wordless sense. And um, so when uh, I went back to visit, uh, I, uh, when I get a chance, you know, every, sometimes it's just once a decade, but this was, uh, Ronald Reagan had just been elected, 1980. And uh, they wanted me to have, they wanted me to hear a prophecy. And so I'm going to tell it to you because it's a, clearly it's been such help to me. It's a prophecy about us. The very fact that you came and walked to this in the door of this place and sat here as them shows that you are ready to hear this 
and some of you already have who've worked with me before. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Joanna Macy and host Steve Heilig. Now, when I tell you this, I want you to know that it's 12 centuries old. It was part of the Kalachakra Tantra. And, <clears throat> and I don't know Tibetan, so I, but it was, it was given to me in Dugucugel Rinpoche's English. And you will hear the word, the chief actor in it. It's about the coming of the kingdom of Shambhala. And you will hear people called the Shambhala warrior. And you will know, especially if you've been in Buddhist practice, that this is a metaphor for the bodhisattva. Now, the bodhisattva is sort of the hero figure in the Buddhist path tradition. It's the one with a boundless heart, the one with a boundless kind of broken heart, with compassion for all, the one who so loves this world that even when she or he has reached the gates of nirvana and and pass into enlightenment, turns around and comes back again and again because their intention is the the awakening of all. The awakening to the wisdom, the wisdom. I call it blissdom. What am I just going? Because it's the wisdom that is bliss. <laughs> blissdom. Okay, so here it is. I wanted to bring the there. There comes a time when all life on earth is in danger. In this time, great powers have arisen, barbarian powers. And although they waste their wealth in preparations to annihilate each other, they have much in common. And among the things they have in common are weapons of extraordinary devastation and technologies that lay waste the world. Now, just at this time, when the future of all life hangs by the frailest of threads, the kingdom of Shambhala emerges. Now, you can't go there because it's not a place. It exists in the heart minds of the Shambhala warriors. And actually, you can't tell a Shambhala warrior by looking at her or him. 
because there's no insignia, no uniform, no barricades to stand on to threaten the enemy. They don't even have any home turf that's their own. Forever they must negotiate their way across the terrain of the barbarian powers. And the time comes when great courage is needed. Moral courage and physical courage because they're going to move into the centers of power and dismantle the weapons. And these are weapon, all kinds of weapons. <coughs> so they weapons of mind and speech as well. And so they are preparing to move into the corridors of power and dismantle those weapons. And now he said, remember she said, Joanna, mark this. The Shambhala warriors know that these weapons can be dismantled. Why? Because they are manomaya. That means mind made. They are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. Because the dangers that are threatening us now are not being coming at us from some evil extraterrestrial force, nor from a savage punishing deity, nor even from some unalterable preordained fate. They arise out of our habits out of our fears and loathing, out of our not being awake. <laughs> they are made by the human mind. They can be unmade by the human mind. And so now he said, now is the time they go into training. The Shambhala words. You can imagine I was, how do they train? <laughs> and he said they train in the use of two weapons. That's the word he used. What are they? I asked. And he held up his hands the way the lamas hold the ritual objects in the great lama dances of his people. And he said... One is compassion, and the other is insight into the interdependence of all life forms. Interexistence, indeed. And you need both. You need the compassion because it provides the fuel to move you out to do what you need to do. It boils down to uh, not being afraid of the suffering of your world or of yourself. It's just suffering. And when you're not afraid of it, 
You can move out there and do what you need to do. But just if it, if that's the only weapon you have, and that's the way to use our instrument or tool, if that's the only means you have, you get burned. You can burn out. Gets very hot. So you need the other, that insight, and the radical interdetermination of all life forms, because that reveals to you how we belong to each other and mutually affect each other from the beginning. And that this is not, this is so important, he said, this is not a war between the good guys and the bad guys. Because the line between good and evil goes through the landscape of every human heart. And we know as well that even the smallest act of caring, of courage, of healing, has repercussions through the web of life beyond our capacity to see it at all. But we know that we are so mutually belonging to each other that what we do has effects and that we are held together in reciprocal care with all other beings. But if that by itself is a little cool, he said, it's a little mental, and so you need the heat of the compassion. You need them both. And then, as I heard that, I remembered, it came to my mind how I could see every day in the puja hall, the prayer hall, how the monks were often in there chanting, doing with their hands, moving mudras, and often as not, they were dancing their hands, the interplay between wisdom and compassion. Well, that's the prophecy. I was so excited. I felt I'd gotten my marching orders. That's all I needed. And my family happened to be with me on that trip. And they were down at the edge of the community, and it was getting near dinner time. It was getting dark. And so after I thanked the Rinpoche, I, dear friend, I sped down the hill to burst through the door where they were. And I said, you won't believe what I just heard from Chuja Rinpoche. And I proceeded to tell them. They, and the whole family was there then, me and my th- and husband and three kids. And um, so that was my first telling. So now to see it helps when you hear something important, tell it over to yourself or to others. My son Jack listened. It's the same Jack who'd written that paper when he was a freshman. And actually now he was a senior. And he said, so he listened and he said, but mom, didn't you, John Rinpoche, tell you how it's going to turn out? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you laughed. Because I laughed too. And I said, 
Honey, if he tried telling me how this is going to turn out, I would have believed none of it. And don't you believe people who tell you, anyone who tells you how it's going to turn out. Because it's the uncertainty of this moment, that knife-edge radical uncertainty that keeps us focused and present enough to give what we have to give and do what we have to do. If I were to tell you, actually, it's going to be okay, everything's going to be all right. At least here in Western Marin. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't try so hard. You just relax everything to help. And or it's too late. And more and more people are saying that. Have you noticed? It's too late. Nothing to do. Then you don't try. But it's not too late because we're here. And because each act you test has unpredictable results, emergent properties, as they say, in, in systems thinking. So just stay present and grateful for every minute. And I'm grateful for your listening. Thank you. Well, as I said, I reread your memoir, Autobiography, from, came out in 2000, right about the time of the retreat. The historical, I mean, it's an amazing book. I mean, I think you know this, but the, the life story, by the, by the time she was about 25, people were saying, what an amazing life story already by then. And uh, childhood and the depression, uh, through the war, traveling the world. She set off and wandered around through Morocco as a college student on her own um, before people were doing that, I think, and as a woman. Um, The 60s, everything that's happened since then. And so I was tempted until you just ended then to ask you, what's going to (laughs) happen? But one thing I do remember from the uh, workshop, the retreat, is you had us sit in two chairs facing each other as if, and, and one of the people was from the future, a hundred years. And you would ask each other, as I believe it was, three questions. What was happening then? What did you do? And then what happened? Given what you just said, I don't want to ask him. I'm going to ask it anyway. A hundred years from now, um, what would you say about looking back at this time? Oh, well, I think about that a lot because the fact that there are future ones out there is what keeps is the biggest fire uh, in my belly that that in service to them. And I've come to feel their presence, the future beings. Um, And they, looking back, have helped me see what's needed. And they call it, 
Uh, oh, you're living back in the early 21st century, the beginning of the third millennium. That was the time of the great turning from a, a wasteful and death-dealing society to a life-sustaining society. It was also the time of the great unraveling. So what's, which is going to win? The great turning to a life-sustaining society or the uh, unraveling of all life systems? But the... So in our practices, we do. We let the future come alive. And the future is actually in us. You know, as a wonderful um, nuclear scientist and expert witness for many uh, nuclear activists, Rosalie Bertel, she said, every being who will ever live in Earth is here now. Where? in your ovaries and in your gonads and in your DNA. The future is in you and can empower you and often make you laugh because they have a sense of humor. <laughs> and so 17 years ago, we were you know, at the start of a decade where there was more war Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've thought about this a lot because it's a theme that's come up in a lot of these talks with people who have veterans of some of the movements and struggles of the uh, 1960s. Um, there were so many that came up, you know, women's rights, civil rights, environmentalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It does feel to me uh, that in the last, <laughs> just to 16 months or so, how long has it been? There's a backlash, extreme, on all of those counts. Um, what do you, I mean, is this part of the prophecy coming, do you think? Or is it just natural progression or uh, a big bump in the road? Uh, you know, a lot of us who work environmentalism, healthcare, issues like that, are really troubled right now much of our life's work being unraveled at a very rapid pace and unsure about where it's going to go. That's true. And, and things are being done now uh, by the Trump administration that I would never have imagined possible. They are of such a wasteful, stupid waste of life and to the point of uh, cruelty. And um, the, the out at Livermore Lab, nuclear lab, not far from here at all, oh boy, are they busy now. Already there are countless, not countless, but a half dozen weapons programs that are highly dangerous that we thought we'd defeated, we'd worked our way through, we got, and they're, they're being funded with nuclear-tipped cruise missiles and interoperable um, missile systems that are a boondog, just keep the, yeah. So it's, um, I don't know why, uh, but I'm, I think that we, 
our media is keeping us focused on, uh, it's, it's not in the nature of our media to be showing how much is being, how we're learning to uh, resolve conflicts, uh, how we're learning to give alternatives to um, privately owned land, land trusts, how we're learning to grow food um, that is healthy and distributed. There are lots of things, part of the great turning that are happening now that are really building foundations for a society that will be, can flourish. Um, but when you have to know where to look, where you're, what journals and websites you're gonna give your attention to. But I bet there are a lot of things that you are involved in in this room that are part of this uh, great turning. And what perhaps is, is the, um, also building is a shift in uh, the way we are seeing, uh, many of us, the way uh, we are comprehending uh, our capacities interactively for healing and many of them being shared here at this institution that are uh, quite a departure from the standard allopathic model of medicine. How there are um, more and more opening to a sense of an identification with the planet. I'm about to say herself. I used to try not to over-feminize the planet <laughs> because of what we, when you think of Mother Earth and what, oh, that can be an invitation to just rape and plunder some more. Um, I see a huge shift in some of the building blocks of awareness and my only hope, that's what, I, what I'm working in. And it's, you know, we have an open sentence um, in the work that we connect that I love. Um, and so you answer this in your mind. I'll give you uh, the three, three first. To be alive in this time of global crisis, what's hard for me is, so you answer that in your mind since we don't have time to have you talk to somebody else. And so then that's good. Let's just talk about, oh, I, I'm, I'm tired of the corrosive. I'm angry all the time. I get so discouraged. I, so blah, blah, blah. And now the second question. What I appreciate about living in this time of global crisis I love that. What are some of the things you'd say? I love the people I hang out with. I love having to stretch my mind. 
I love having to learn new things. I love the excitement of doing an action with other people. I love loving people in a way that I love people when we're working together for life on earth. And I love that question. I wouldn't want to live, go back and live, you know, I, I adore my mother, even though she had that dumb thing to say to me. But, but I, would I want her life? Aside from the fact she had a, a, a terrible marriage, but aside from that. I mean, there's the, the, you know, big deal. You have a bridge party. Each one of us now is asked to be uh, a planetary hero. I'm not kidding. You know it. You know it in your heart. You're asked to show up in a way that um, you probably never would have expected. And it's there for you when you open your eyes. Yeah. You were saying? Three. Three, three questions? Was there one? Oh, more? yeah. That's how we can forget that. Um, when I look at my life, I see that I am taking part in the great turning already and in these ways. So that's true. I know that you are, and you can just look at your life and see that. Thanksgiving for yourself is so important. Thanksgiving for every time that you read something and do something that is helping you show up. Thanksgiving for every time you bless yourself. I think that uh, we are suffering from so much self-loathing after a couple of centuries of capitalism. Capitalism has bred self-contempt because it has to give us a, 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 a grim understanding of ourselves as insufficient. We don't have the right clothing. We don't smell right. We don't look right. We don't drive the right. The message has always been how far you have to go to be an adequate person. And you have to have this or that. So even though you say, oh, well, I don't care about, I drive an old jalopy myself, but it's very, very subtle thing, and it's hitting our kids. So this is a time for... Um, I'm trying to find a way to say this, but I have noticed in the, um, and my birthday's this coming week. I'm going to be 89. <laughs> and I've noticed how this, the 
thing, it, it seems so hard. Sometimes it feels like I, my life's been for nothing or that I can't stand anymore because of what you see happening. And so shame for our people and so forth. And uh, that what's happening is a tide of appreciation uh, for myself. We deserve that. And also to feel our earth loving us. And to feel your love for this incredible earth. As I'm leading up to my poem. It's time. It's time. And so the autobiography is called Widening Widening Circles, which comes from a poem by Rilke that you found. She's actually a translator of Rilke, one of the the yeah. most uh, respected translations, and you said you wanted to close with a poem. I don't even know if it's Yeah, right. it's not that one. I did But I have. <laughs> but the, They're in there, though. Oh, you're so lucky. These are the best for keeping you going. Now, but this is from um, the Ninth Duino Elegy of um, Reiner uh, Maria Rilke, written in the 20s, right shortly before he died, not long Uh, He was before he turned 50. And I just wanted... I think we're in such a crisis right now that our recognition that we are Earth can play a very important role for giving us stamina, and self-appreciation and rest a calm mind. There is nothing, no part of your body or mind that does not come from this planet. And the amazing thing is that we are in the generation that has learned from science, not just from indigenous religion who knew it all along and mystics and poets, but from science that our planet is alive. It is a self-organizing system, a self-organizing body. It is our larger body. From the holographic point of view, the whole is in the part as well as the part within the whole. There's so much to tell us that now. This is going to our recognition that we are entirely, our planet can play a role. This is my strong instinct now in helping us do what needs to be done and show up in ways that we need to show up. And we can do it. What's great is we can do it with a calm and glad mind because whatever happens, We are already home. So these are just... um, Why do we have to be human and keep running from the fate we long for? Oh, not because of such a thing as happiness, that fleeting gift before the loss begins. 
not from curiosity or to exercise the heart, but because simply to be here is so much. And because what is here seems to need us is vanishing, this vanishing world that concerns us strangely, us, the most vanishing of all. Once for each, only once, once and no more, and we too, just once, never again, but to have lived this once, to have been of earth, this cannot be taken from us. And so a hunger drives us. We want to contain it all in our naked hands, our brimming senses, our speechless hearts. We want to become it to, or, or, or offer it, but to whom? We would hold it forever, but after all, what can we keep? Not the beholding, slow, slow to learn, not anything that has happened here, nothing. There are the hurts and always the hardships, and there's the long knowing of love, all of it unsayable. Yet here is the time for telling. Here is its home. Speak and make known. More and more, the things we could experience are lost to us, banished by our failure to imagine them. Old definitions break apart like dried crusts. Between hammers pounding, the heart exists like the tongue between the teeth which still, after all, does the praising. Oh, praise the world and the things. Even as they pass, they understand that we praise them. Transient, they are trusting us to save them, us the most transient of all, as if they wanted in our invisible hearts to be transformed into, oh, endlessly into us. Earth, isn't this what you want to arise in us? Invisible, is it not your dream to enter us so wholly there's nothing left outside us to see? What, if not transformation, is your deepest purpose? Earth, my love, I want that too. Believe me, no more of your springtimes are needed to win me over even one flower <laughs> is more than enough. Before I was named, I belonged to you. I need no other law but yours and know I can trust the death you will bring. See, I live. On what? Childhood and future are equally present. Sheer abundance of being floods my heart. Überzähligen Dasein entspringt in dir im Herzen. Joanna Macy, thank you.
You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Joanna Macy and host Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.